Uh, I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving week. Um, mine was a little bit rough, and I don't just mean the Cowboys-Eagles game. Now, worse than that, two days before, uh, my son came to me, he's five, Gabriel came to me and said, hey, Dad, what are we going to do for Thanksgiving? And I said, well, we're going to eat some turkey dinner, and uh, we're going to have some friends over, and we're going to watch the Cowboys play. And he said, who are they playing? And I said, the Eagles. And he said, I love the Eagles. Corrupting my child. So I did what I think any loving father does in that, in that moment. You know, I sat him down and I said, hey, buddy, listen, I love you. And, and I love you no matter what. Whether you're a Cowboys fan or an Eagles fan, I'm your dad and I love you. But you should know that Eagles fans don't get Christmas. I don't know if that was the right thing to do, but it just, it seemed like the right thing to do in that moment. But no, seriously, we had a great Thanksgiving week. We had some friends in town and I love Thanksgiving. It's a chance to reflect on what God has done in our lives. And so Carrie and I, we have kind of a tradition that we picked up from her family that we've been doing for several years. And we always share what we're most thankful for, for the past year, um, you know, other than Jesus, each other, or our kids because that's cheating. Um, And and it was really cool this year because both of us really shared the same thing. And we were just so thankful for really how far God has brought us in the last year and a half. Um, You know, moving from Texas out here, uh, some of you have done some big moves in your life, and moving half a continent away from family and friends, from home where we thought we'd be for a long time, was was difficult for us, and it was, it took quite a bit of transition, and, but just seeing God through that process, seeing how he's carried us, how he's um, just been alongside us every step of the way, and how he's used so many of you in our lives. Uh, caring for us and loving us and encouraging us, and it has just meant so much to us. And so we're very, very thankful to you, uh, but especially to God for how he has uh, just been with us every step of the way. It's very cool. It's very cool. You know, gratitude is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. You know, I think in my own life that, that the level of joy and contentment and love that I have for my life and whatever's going on around it is always directly proportional to the level of gratitude that I have. And I'm sure that's true for you as well, that the level of of joy and contentment and satisfaction, love that you have for your your family, your work, your career, you know, whatever's going on in your life is always directly proportional to the level of gratitude that you have. I mean, just think about it. Some of the most miserable people that you'll ever meet are ungrateful people, unthankful people. These are the people, it doesn't matter what's going on in their lives, it's never good enough. You know, there's always an inconvenience, there's always a problem, there's never what they really wanted it to be. And so their spouse is never good enough, their kids are never good enough, their house is never good enough, their career is never good enough. This is going to be a little bit distracting, but just try to stay with me. We're uh, obviously working through some kinks with this, uh, but we think it, I really like the look of it. Um, I think it'll be good. It feels a little more intimate. Um, but these ungrateful people, right, they're, they're, it's never good enough. There's never satisfaction. There's never contentedness. There's always something more that they're missing, that they're lacking. But grateful people, grateful people have a profound sense of, of contentment, of joy, of peace, regardless of their circumstances. So what's the difference? Why is it that some people have this gratitude, other people don't? What, what's going on there? And, and there's this story in Luke 17 that we're going to look at this morning that I think gives us a clue 
Because I think it's more than just counting our blessings and having a positive outlook. I think there's something deeper, an underlying belief about who God is, who we are, and really what we deserve, what we're entitled to, that, that drives these attitudes of either gratefulness or ungratefulness. And so we're going to look at that this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to put it up on the screens as well. But Luke 17, Luke 17. See if this works. There we go. Luke 17, starting verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Okay, so now here's the scene. Jesus has been out in Judea and he's been doing his work, healing people and preaching about the kingdom. And now he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be brought up on trumped up charges. He's going to go before a kangaroo court. It's a sham. And ultimately, he's going to be executed as a criminal for things he did not do. And as he does so, he will die for the sins of the world. But on his way, he stops in this village. And while he's there, he encounters these 10 lepers who are hanging out at a distance in the village. So they're not in the village. They're hanging out on the fringe. Now, the reason they're out there is because, A, they've got leprosy, okay? So obviously, this is a terrible disease. It's horrible. They have parts of them that are rotting off and falling off, and it's, it's terrible. But they're out there not just because they're diseased, not just because they're sick, but because according to Old Testament law, they were to be outcasts of society because of their leprosy. They were considered unclean. So Leviticus 13, just to give you a picture of this, says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So you start to get this picture that these guys, their existence is a terrible existence. They're outside of the camp. They're, They're wearing rags. Their hair looks terrible. They're unkempt. They're unbathed. And they're covering their faces like this, yelling, unclean, unclean, so that no one will come near them. And it's not just because they're diseased, but they're actually considered ceremonially, ceremonially? unclean, which means that they are outcasts of society. They're not allowed to be with their family, their friends. They're outside of the village. And worst of all, they're not allowed to participate in the worship of God and the worship of Yahweh. It's a terrible existence, cut off from everyone. And so these men are standing at the edge of the village, cut off from everyone around them. But they're not yelling unclean, unclean. They're yelling mercy, mercy. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. So these men are calling out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy upon us. And and Jesus, out of compassion, out of mercy, out of pity, out of love for them, he says, Okay, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, the priests were not doctors. No, they go to the priests because it was only the priests who could allow them to come back into society. Only the priest could declare a person clean. So they would be healed, and then the priest would say, yes, you're healed. You are now clean. You can now come back into society, back to your family, your friends, and back into the worship of Yahweh. And so these men hear Jesus say, go to the priest. So they go on their way. And can you imagine this? As they go, they look down, and their skin is changing. And what was white and ashy is starting to change. And they're looking at each other's faces, and now you look different. Oh, I look different. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine what they're thinking? I mean, the excitement. You've been cut off for years. 
from friends, from family, from everybody, you know, I'm going to get to go back and see my wife, see my kids, see my friends. We're going to get to go back to the temple and to worship God. This is incredible. It's a miracle. And you would think that this would be the point of Luke's story. Wouldn't you? I mean, how crazy is that? You would think this has to be the climax of the story. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is God, that he heals these men when no one else could. He sends them on their way and their leprosy is cured. But that's not Luke's point. Now, what Luke wants us to see is what comes after the miracle. The miracle is great, but he wants us to see what comes next. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he was healed, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Now, if you're not familiar with Samaritans, let me give you a very broad description, okay? So these Samaritans within Jewish society were understood, they were considered uh, half-breeds and heretics. So in the Old Testament, when Israel first inhabited the land, they were told very strictly not to intermarry with other cultures, other uh, peoples. But some of them disobeyed, some of them intermarried, and that's where the Samaritans come from. And they were considered half-breeds because they were not fully Jewish. But even more significantly, they were considered heretics, Because they did not worship God according to the Old Testament law. They had their own priestly system. They had a different place of worship. And so a Samaritan was already despised and rejected within Jewish society. So to be a a Samaritan leper was essentially to be the outcast of the outcast. And yet this is the person who turns back. This is the one who comes back, who gives praise to God, who falls on his hands and his knees before Jesus, giving thanks. And Luke's point is this. It's the person that we least expect. See, the implication here is that the other nine are Jews. It's the other nine who should know better. It's the other nine who have the law and the prophets, who should turn around, see what God has done, see Jesus, recognize him as Messiah, and fall on their hands and knees worshiping him. But it's not. It's the Samaritan. This is a common theme throughout scripture. And it's a common theme in the gospel and it's a common theme in Luke. That God often uses the people that we least expect to do his most remarkable work. God doesn't deal in the expected. And some of you need to hear that this morning because some of you, you are the person that you least expect God to do anything significant in. Some of you, you've looked around at other people Maybe in this room, maybe your spouse, maybe, heaven forbid, somebody up here on stage. And you thought, oh yeah, those are the people that God's really using. Those are the people that God has his hand on. Those are the people that God's doing something in their lives, not me. Maybe you think that you're disqualified for some reason. Maybe you think you haven't been a Christian long enough. Maybe you don't think you've got the expertise or whatever it is. But for you, you are the person that you least expect God to do something in. For God to get a hold of. But can I tell you something? That while God does use... Rich, beautiful, competent people. You know who he really delights in using? Samaritan lepers. The outcasts of the outcasts. He delights in using tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners like you and me. Because it's when God gets a hold of those of us who are broken when he does his most remarkable work in us, his glory shines all the brighter. His power is more fully displayed. And so you may be sitting there thinking, God has nothing for me. I'm just here filling up space. 
You may think, yeah, I expect God to use everybody else, but not you. Let me tell you, God may have his eye on you. He may have something planned for you, something designed for you. And I don't know what that is. Maybe for you, he has a plan for you to be the person who gives compassion to somebody in need. That he wants you to be the person who brings a kingdom mentality to a project at work. Maybe somebody who, who goes home and makes God a priority for the first time in your house. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that if you're not expecting God to do something in your life, then you better watch out. And don't miss out. Don't miss what he might do just because you don't expect it. See, the Samaritan, he comes back. The Samaritan, he comes back. Because God often does his most remarkable work in the people we least expect. People like you and people like me. And so Jesus, he asked the obvious question. He says, then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this guy, this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus asked the obvious question. Okay, where's everybody else? I, hired t- I, I healed 10, so where's the other nine? What happened to them? Well, we don't know exactly, but it seems from the story that they go off to the priest, they get their clean bill of health, they go back to their families, and that's all we ever hear of them. They never come back. But the Samaritan comes back. The Samaritan comes back in gratefulness and thanksgiving to God. So what's the difference? What's happened? Why don't the other nine come back? What's different? In, in the passage right before this story, Uh, Luke gives us a bit of teaching from Jesus about our relationship with God. He's teaching the disciples about our relationship with God, and I think it gives us some insight into what's happening with the other nine. So if you have your Bibles, you can scoot back a little bit, back to verse 7. This is what Jesus says. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus says, okay, imagine that you're back in the ancient Near East. This is a little bit hard for us. We don't deal in servants and slaves anymore. But imagine you're in the ancient Near East and you've got a servant or a slave who goes out in the field and does their work. If you're the master, when that servant comes in, you're not like, hey, have a seat, take a load off. Let me, let me massage your feet for a little while. Let me go in and make you a hot meal and, and serve you. No, the master says, hey, you get in the kitchen, make me a meal. And after I've eaten and had my full, then you get to eat and drink. Jesus is saying that there's a hierarchy here. There's a relationship, an understood relationship, that the master does not serve the servant. The servant serves the master. Now, it's a little different for us, but imagine for a moment that you're at a nice dinner, all right? So you're down on Bridge Street at Pepperoncino or one of those places, and uh, your waiter comes by. You're not like, hey, you know what? You look like you've been on your feet for a while. Why don't you sit down and join us? No, it doesn't happen because you are paying for that service. You're paying for that service and they are serving you. That's how we understand that relationship to work. How many of you were at Wegmans last week buying your Thanksgiving turkey and when you got in the checkout line, as the person was checking you out, you said, you know what, why don't you come over for lunch this Thursday? You should come join us for Thanksgiving meal. Now, maybe we should, but did anybody do that? No. 
We're paying for services. They're serving us. This is how we understand these things to work within society. And Jesus' point is that the master does not serve the servants. The servants serve the master. And his point is this. God is the master. We are the servants. God is not obligated to serve us. We are obligated to serve him. And he does not owe us gratitude when we do what we were supposed to do. It's like when you were a kid, remember, and your parents would say, hey, you need to go clean your room. And you'd say, why? And they'd say, because I, why? I said so. Did they give you a heartfelt thank you afterwards? No. Maybe sarcastic in my family. But no. You didn't get a thank you afterwards. No, look, the creator God is not obligated to serve us. He's not obligated to do anything for us. He's not obligated to thank us when we do what we're supposed to do. He is God and we are not. And what I think Luke is doing here is he's saying that those nine who didn't come back, they have taken that relationship and flipped it on its head. They've inverted that. They've treated Jesus as though he's the servant, though he is supposed to bless them. He's supposed to heal them. And so they don't owe him any debt of gratitude because he's only done what he was supposed to do for them. See, one of the reasons that we are not thankful to God is because somewhere along the line, we have begun to think that God is supposed to bless us. That God is somehow obligated to do right by us, that he's supposed to do good things for us, that somehow he owes us, that we deserve it, that we are entitled to it. And so long as we believe that, so long as we believe that God owes us in some way, then we are not going to be grateful. We're not going to be thankful to him. We're not going to come back to him because he's simply doing what he was supposed to do. See, I think the great majority of us, we live oftentimes as though we are in some sort of a contractual arrangement with God. That as long as I do what I'm supposed to do, God has to bless me. I'm going to do my part, God. You do your part for me. I'm going to fulfill my side of the bargain. You fulfill your side of the bargain for me. This is what the nine understood. I mean, this is what you see, right? They're obedient to Jesus, right? Not very tricky, but he says, go to the priest. So they're like, okay, we're going to do what you say. We're going to go to the priest. Now you do your part, God. You do your part, Jesus. You heal us. See, I think that all of us, whether we care to admit it or not, even whether we realize it or not, we believe that if we will just do what God says, if we will do the right things, then God will bless us. In fact, he's supposed to bless us. He's obligated to bless us. God, I have sacrificed for you. I have, I have given up things for you. Now, where's my blessing? God, I've given to the church. I've given sacrificially. I've given financially. I've given of my time. Now, where's my blessing? Oh, God, I moved my family halfway across the country. Now, where's my blessing? God, I've been faithful to my spouse. I haven't done all those other things that I know I wasn't supposed to do. So where's my blessing? See, God, you need to bless me. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And then you make sure I don't get sick. I have financial stability. My career moves up and to the right and my kids turn out well. But can I ask you, if we are serving God because of the blessing, if we're serving God because of what we believe it gets us in return, then who are we really serving? Are we serving him? Or are we serving us? Elizabeth Elliot, uh, is a, she was the wife of, of Jim Elliot. He's a famous missionary who, who died. He was a martyr for the sake of the gospel. This is a woman who understands that serving God doesn't always end happy. And she wrote this book called Strange Ashes, and in it she tells this kind of amusing story that I think is really 
helpful. And it's about Jesus and the disciples. It's not in the Bible. You're not going to find it there. But here's how it goes. So Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and he says, okay, men, I need you to do something for me. I want all of you to pick up a rock and follow me. Everybody, do this for me. Pick up a rock and follow me. And so Peter, he's thinking ahead. He says, you know, Jesus didn't really say what size rock. So I'm just going to pick up the smallest rock that I can find and I'm going to follow him. And so they go off on their way. And about noon, they stop. And Jesus says, okay, everybody hold out your rocks. And so Peter's got his little rock. And, he, and Jesus waves his hand and they all turn to bread. And he says, enjoy your lunch. And Peter says, wait, what? Then after lunch, Jesus says, okay, guys, I need you to do something else for me. Not for you. Do this for me. I want you to pick up another rock and follow me. And this time Peter's thinking ahead and he says, man, I'm starving for lunch. So I'm going to get the biggest rock I can find. So he goes and finds this boulder and he's like, you know, stumbling after Jesus. And they walk for hours and they finally stop about dinner time by the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. They they sit down. Jesus says, okay, everybody hold out your rocks. And Peter's thinking, I'm going to eat well now. He's got his big rock. And Jesus says, that's fantastic. Now throw them in the sea. And Peter goes, wait, what? And Jesus says, who were you carrying the rock for? Was it for me? Or was it for you? See, the nine, they're obedient. They did the right thing. They did what Jesus said to do, but they weren't doing it because he was Lord, because he was master, because he was God. They were doing it because of what it was going to get them. And as long as they believed that they were entitled to that blessing because of what they had done, then there was no reason to turn around and say thank you. But the Samaritan, the Samaritan, He comes back because he knows that what he has received, he did not deserve. See, the reality is that you and I, we don't want what we deserve. We don't want karma. We don't want what we've got coming to us because if we get what we've got coming to us, we're all toast. Every single one of us Every single one of us, we have all done, thought, and said things, terrible things. All of us have rejected God in our own hearts. We've said, God, I don't want you as God. I want to be God. I want to be in charge of my own life. I want to have control of my own life. I don't want you anymore. We've all committed treason against the creator of the universe. See, follow me on this, okay? Don't miss this. What we deserve at best, understand this, at best what we deserve is to be treated like servants. We deserve to be treated like servants who do what we're supposed to do and get nothing in return. We don't deserve thanks. We don't deserve gratitude. That's it. But we don't even deserve that because who employs a traitor? Who has a servant who's their enemy? Who, ha- who hires somebody who wants them dead? And that's you and me. Except by the grace of God, we've all shaken our fists at God and said, God, I wish you were dead because I want to be God. I want control. As traitors, the only thing we deserve is death. But God offers us life. What we don't deserve. See, he's the master who invites the servant to sit at the table. He's the guy at the restaurant who turns to the waiter and says, you know what, why don't you sit a while? I'm going to serve you. He's the guy in the line at Wegmans who turns to the checkout person and says, hey, come over for lunch. He's the master who, who serves his servants. He's the master who becomes the servant of all. 
of all. Remember when Jesus is up in the upper room and the, the men are fighting over who's going to wash whose feet? And Jesus could have said, hey, guys, God, right here, I'm God. You serve me. But what does he do? He gets a towel, wraps it around his waist and gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash their feet. He is the master who becomes the servant of all. That's grace. See, we don't want what we deserve. We certainly don't want karma. We don't want what's fair. We don't want what we deserve. We want what we don't deserve. We want grace. And grace understood. Grace that is understood always, always leads to gratitude. Because it's in gratitude that we admit that we don't deserve the things that we have. That all of this is a gift. That we didn't deserve it. We're not entitled to it. It wasn't owed us. It's all a gift from God. And when that, when that realization sinks in, when we have that gratitude, admitting that it was all a gift, then there's no room for discontentment. There's no room for dissatisfaction. There's no room for comparison, for jealousy, for envy. Because I don't get to sit back and say, man, I really want what he's got. I really want her job or his house or her family or his vacation home. I don't get to say that because what I have, I didn't deserve to begin with. What I have was a gift. I didn't deserve it. I'm not entitled to it. So there's no room for comparison and jealousy and all those things because everything that I have was a gift. I didn't deserve it to begin with. And when I have that kind of gratitude, then I can give my life back to God. Did you catch that? See, this is what happens with the Samaritan. What does he do? Right? He comes back. Now, notice he's not coming back just to give Jesus a thank you card. Now, what does he do? He comes back. He's praising God. He falls on his hands and knees, giving thanks to Jesus. And he doesn't move until Jesus says, okay, you can go. See, the other nine, they're on their way. There's no reason to come back and they're off living their lives. But this man, he gets it. He comes back. He falls on his hands and knees and says, Jesus, I'm yours. Master, thank you. I have no life except for the life that you've given me. And it's not until Jesus says, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well before he moves. He's giving his life to Jesus right there. See, this is the real power of thankfulness. This is the real power of gratitude. It's not just that we would be joyful and content and happy with our lives. That's great. But listen, that's collateral. You know the real power of gratitude? It's seen when we offer our lives that Jesus has given to us back to him. See, Jesus has done more than just healed us of leprosy. You guys get that, right? This isn't just leprosy we're talking about. It's infinitely worse. He's cured us of sin and death. The only lives that we have are the lives that he gives to us. There is no life apart from him. The forgiveness of sins, salvation, these things that he has given to us that we did not deserve. It's out of gratitude for those things that then we in turn get to offer our lives right back to him. See, if we're going to be a people who live for Jesus no matter what. If we're going to be a people who no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost, no matter what's going on in our lives, with grateful abandon, will live for him, then we have to be overwhelmed by grace and overflowing with gratitude. Gratitude is that first step in living for Jesus. You know what's going to make this world take our God seriously? 
You know what's going to make this world look at God and take him seriously the way that we always talk about him? That we say that he's great and he's wonderful and he's better than life. You know what's going to make them finally believe us is when we start to live like it. It's when we finally admit that we don't deserve the American dream, that we're not entitled to all that money can buy. And we're finally willing to say, I'm willing to let go of the cars and the houses and the bank account and the 401k and my safety and my security and all of it because it's worth it's worth it to follow Jesus. That he really is that great. He really is that wonderful. And that if I have nothing else, he's enough. That's when the world will begin to believe us. He gave up everything for us. And because he did, we can give up everything for him. He laid down his life for us. And because he did, we can lay down our lives for him. He is the master who became the servant of all. And if we have nothing else, he's enough. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Gratitude is the first step. It's the first step. This is what makes the Samaritan turn around. Gratitude, recognizing and admitting that everything that we have is a gift. That we didn't deserve any of it. There was all grace. And it was always grace. Is the first step in living for him. No matter what. Uh, when you leave this morning, um, you, actually when you came in, you should have gotten like a little thank you card. If you didn't get one, you can get one on your way out. Um, and, and I know on the back it's got a place. Actually here, I've got one. On the back it's got a little place for an address and everything, but actually that's, that's not what we're going to do with these. Um, this isn't for someone else, um, or at least not to send. This is for you to write to God. I know that's kind of cheesy, it's kind of weird, but um, here's the deal. Some of you may have never really stopped to thank him. Not in your own words. You've had other people do it for you. You've agreed with other people's prayers, but you've never said it yourself. And so this is an opportunity to write longhand, old school. What are you grateful for? And I'm not just looking, you know, not just talking about like a laundry list of things. That's great. But the greatest gift that's enough if we had nothing else, is Jesus himself. And so I just encourage you this week to take a minute to write this out. To express to God your gratefulness, your gratitude for the sacrifice that he's made for you. And maybe some of you are saying, hey, you know, I don't really have a relationship with God. I'm not really sure what I believe. You know what? This might be a great first step for you simply to acknowledge that he has given you good things. So make a list. Say thank you. Turn around like the Samaritan did. Give praise to God. Give him thanks. Maybe that's the first step that some of us need in giving our lives to Christ. Uh, before Greg and uh, the band come up, uh, we've got a video that uh, tells a little bit about the life of, of someone who I think profoundly understood this idea of thanks, thankfulness and what it means to live for Christ. So um, let me pray for us real quick and then we'll, we'll show the film, all right? Father, we just come before you right now and we are grateful in fact, we don't even have words to express our gratitude. We don't know where to begin. 
but we know that it's always been grace. That we never deserved it. We never deserved. We were never owed. We were never entitled to the things that you've given to us. It was always grace. I pray that that would captivate us, that we would be a people who are overwhelmed by grace and overflowing with thankfulness. If we have nothing else, you're enough. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.